Welcome to Shed Life. Hello, once again, Dr. Farlow, friend of the Shed. How are you today, mate? Yeah, good, thank you, mate. How are you? It's good I to be back good. on the Shed. It's good oh, to be back. It's good to have you, mate. It's good to have you. I'm very good, thanks. Um, so we've got actually uh, quite an interesting conversation for the listeners today. Um, so people might not know this, but you are a big, I want to say, fan of the country of Colombia. You uh, visit there several times. Um, I'm right in saying your partner is Colombian. Um, you, you have quite a few links to that country, don't you? Yeah, I've been to, I visited the country uh, quite a few times. Um, and yeah, I really do. I do like the country. But one thing that I've always found fascinating is sort of the the recent history around the surrounding the country in terms of the violence that they've suffered across the board. Um, well, that, that's, sure. the, that's the, that's the role of this time, the topic that we're going to discuss, which you mentioned to me, uh, kind of the rise of guerrillas in Colombia in sort of recent history. Um, well, when I say recent history, I mean like, what, the last 60 odd years or something, but yeah, man, this is going to be enlightening for a lot of us. A uh, very fascinating subject. Um, Probably lots of parts of it, I'm assuming, has been made quite popular and famous by um, TV shows, right? Which I think has uh, captured a lot of the imagination of the public, etc. So, yeah, without I, further ado, mate, take it away. I think that just before we start, I think that's a really fair point. I think a lot of the information that people sort of know about Colombia and the violence that's sort of instilled within Colombia, they know about a lot of the narco-traffickers, particularly Pablo Escobar, um, through sort of Netflix, through Narcos. There's another program called Pablo Escobar, El Patron del Mal. And again, you get a flavor of within there about sort of guerrilla warfare, but you don't get the whole sense of it. So the world is sort of aware of how the cocaine industry um, led to so much, I mean, the money generated through that industry alone was significantly much more than any other industry in Colombia at that time. So I think it's quite clear to see that everybody knows about the cocaine industry. How many people know truly how much, who were the real parties behind this war? Who were the two people that were sustaining this war? How did Pablo Escobar contribute to this war? And how did he play his part? But it's not just him. And I guess for many of our audience out there, I think there's it's probably a bit of an education about about who the big players were in Colombia. And I think we all sort of in the West have just this impression of Pablo Escobar and and what a narco trafficker is, and that's a stereotypical Colombian. But I think that's very wrong. And it's good to you know to dispel any sort of myths where possible so yeah let's get into mm. it um uh, wait, not, just, before, not... just before we start dr furlough i just wanted to ask um this is a separate topic before we start so just what is the fascination of colombia to you personally uh, just to give our listeners a kind of uh, you know background understanding you know i know i know you said you visit a few times so you have some personal connections there but what is it that really sort of fascinates and draws you into that country so I think um, we're, obviously what we're talking about on the pod is a, are topics that are, you know, potentially controversial topics. They touch upon sensitive issues, uh, um, you know, times of violence, people's lives were impacted. And I think that's obviously, you know, from a Colombian's perspective, those are not the things that they would want to celebrate about their culture. Now, the reason I like the country is just like how they'd like to celebrate their culture for the many sort of rich aspects to their culture. So music is a big part. I really enjoy um, the love in Latin America, particularly in Colombia, for different types of music, particularly salsa, bachata, reggaeton, um, also merengue, um, uh, gua, 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 Guachata? No. I, 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 there's so many different <laughs> yeah, fair apologies. There's so many different no, types fine. of music mm. that I found that fascinating. And their love for dance and the true 
element of soul within their people. So, I mean, I, their food is delicious. Um, I, I, I mean, I, 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 the women are beautiful. <laughs> the sunshine, you know, <laughs> you know, it, it, there's many things about that country that are beautiful. But uh, I guess I, I, I guess for me, it's, it's, it's more than that. Yeah. So, like you said, my partner's Colombian. Um, you know, getting to know her family, sort of, you know, getting to know more about their culture, uh, learning about it. And I genuinely am fascinated by the country because whenever I go to the country, whichever part I go to, every part, every region is so different. It's so different. And some of the most breathtaking landscape in the world, honestly, and, and, and that's something that I love to see. You know, when you go across the world to be able to see, you know, I, I think about beautiful countries like New Zealand, great landscape. You know, Colombia's up there with some of the finest landscape in the world. And then when you're thinking then about, you know, the type of sort of different ecosystems you can see when you, 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 you take into account the south of the country is covered by the Amazon. People don't, half people don't go there. But, but, but imagine what the sort of diversity that that brings to the table on so many different domains. Mm. No, that sounds fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. All right, yeah. Well, when you kick us off with, like we said at the start, we are talking about this all political, political uh, movements, you know, in the last 60 odd years, maybe further back, and the rise of the guerrillas, I guess. And uh, yeah, I'm interested to hear this. So hit it, mate. Yeah, so I think, I mean, to get a bit of a start on it, I think you need to, you, you, you need to get a little bit of a background flavour to, to sort of what happened in the, the run-up for these sort of movements. And we're going to talk about FARC, FARC's the main organisation we're going to talk about a little bit later. Um, what, how this sort of whole guerrilla concept emerged in Colombia. And... Um, you need to go back to a period of 1958. So yeah, between 1958 and 1974 uh, was the period known as La Violencia. And as I said to you, um, this is sort of that main period of time. Um, sorry, did I say 1958 to 1974? I meant 1948. Um, so if you can imagine, um, you know, as early back as 48, Colombia has been plagued by this violence. And as we're going to come to find out during the course of this pod, you know, the peace agreement was made in 2016. So if you get an understanding of a sort of period of violence between 1948 and 2016, essentially, it's quite a long period of time, um, over 70 years. So, um, so yeah, talking a little bit about this period and, and how, why this period was labelled La Violencia, just as a background to the emergence of guerrilla warfare in Colombia. Um, so there was an assassination of a populist politician at the time called uh, Jorge Gaitan. And um, at that time, following the assassination, there was a large spree amount of protest. Protest that essentially ended in violence that spread throughout Colombia. And what you would essentially had on your hands was a civil war. And it was a conservative, liberal civil war. Where I'd probably say that you you could estimate that it was more than two hundred and fifty thousand deaths at that wow. time. Wow! So 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 already getting a picture, and and and, and actually the word La Violencia in Spanish, um, its connotations, it's very strong. I know the literal meaning is the violence um, mm. in English, but but actually in Spanish the weight that that period carries, la violencia, that word, the significance, it is very heavy. Um, so, and I think it, it definitely depicts large-scale violence when you think about over 250,000 deaths. Um, so, so what 
so what was that period? Let's talk about 48, the period between 48 to 58, which was the original sparking of this civil war between liberals and conservatives of Colombia. What you got were the conservatives were killing off all the peasants and laborers in rural Colombia. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so that's what was happening. And that became a sequence of killings, a spree of killings that largely the conservative side went and did. And they were killing all the laborers, all the rural workers, all the agricultural workers, finishing them off um, in a spree of killings. And that masked a real bloody period early on in Colombia, in Colombian history. So then in 57, um, the Liberal Party uh, and the Conservative Party finally sought some sort of truce and actually created a bipartisan political system. What I mean by that is, is that they created a system where only members of the Liberal and the Conservative Party could be could put themselves forward as they work in a collaborative government. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yep. So they were known, ironically enough, I mean, it would probably have a different connotation somewhere in the UK, but they were called the National Front at that time. Um, yeah. So, 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 I mean, and in, in Spanish, Frente Nacional. So, so you know, you, you've got it. And again, when, when people, our audience might hear that, they may think, National Front, is this a, um, you know, predominantly far right? No, the actual reality of it was, this was a bipartisan system which sure. brought the left and the right together mm -hmm. uh, in Colombia. So uh, they agreed, the two parties agreed, that they would uh, alternate in the exercise of power by presenting, as I said, a joint National Front candidate from each party to each election. And what that does is it restricts the participation of other bodies and organizations. Does that make sense? Or other parties? Yeah, yeah. So they created a system where only liberals and conservatives could take power of Colombia, and that's it. And it was just those two parties you had to identify with. Interesting stuff, man. Um, I have a question, just going back, obviously you said this La Violencia period was uh, one of the bloodiest in Colombia's history Absolutely. or something. Absolutely. Um, so you mentioned his assassination of their, um, uh, was it a politician, prime minister? Absolutely. The, the uh, George Alicia Gaitan. So just, just talk to us about the importance of this sort of figure and how how that could have sparked such a, a bloody period like what you know how important was he as a figure okay so a little bit of background about Jorge Eliseo Gaitan Ayala he was a politician he was a leader of a socialist movement and he was a former education minister at Col in, in Colombia a labor minister at one period of time he was also the mayor of Bogota and he was emerging as one of the key sort of figures of the Liberal Party. Um, and this is, just for our audience's sake, just to get a time period sense, this is between the period of sort of, you know, the, the late 40s, sort of late 40s, uh, late 30s, late 40s. So late 30s to 40s, he was, you know, this guy was a key figure in a socialist way of thinking in Colombia and actually to become the mayor of Bogota I believe at that time he was one of the first liberal and socialist mayor, mayors of Bogota so for, for, for many it was he was an inspiring young man and actually this served to show that the, the oligarchs of Colombia the former conservatives will try to still con seek control. And, and why did this happen? Why was he killed? 
That's a good question. I was just about to ask you that. Was he killed by the opposition or something? He was killed by the opposition, if I'm not mistaken, yes. Um, I, I, I don't know so much about his death, but my understanding is it was by the opposition. Hmm. And it was to do with his political ideals. So, as I said to you, he was the former education minister, again, bringing a socialist rev revolutionary way of thinking in Colombia at that time, brought about a lot of change that many, re this kind of form formidable, repu reputable, known oligarchs of Colombia, they didn't want that change. They didn't feel that that change benefited them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Mm. So, all right. So then going back to um, uh, post-love, violencia, what was okay. sort of the out output of that exactly? Absolutely. Absolutely. So I think that's a great question. So, I mean, that's actually now what we, what we're going to talk about in terms of the emergence of guerrilla warfare. So the, in, essentially, with the period that followed La Violencia, you had various different peasants at what they were called peasants at the time or rural workers yeah. that were forming various defense groups and taking their own auto defense. So making, taking, uh, taking up arms, taking up military action and forming their own sort of defense groups, defense leagues, rural leagues were set up. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so then what you got from that was you got the emergence. I mean, actually, you know, talking about La Violencia and talking about and really the, the ideals of an emergence of guerrilla warfare, um, that's correct. But when we think about communism, communism has been around in Colombia as early as uh, post-First World War. So I think it's very important to recognize that the Partido Comunista, or the Colombian Communist Party, formerly known as the PCC, they were actually um, accredited formally in Colombia in 1930. So actually, when you think about this emergence of guerrilla warfare post La Violencia, focusing more on this kind of liberal, ongoing liberal conservative war. Actually, communism has been around in Colombia since the 30s. And there was an emerged party that was decreed in the constitution. They recognized there is a Colombian communist party. As I said, Comunista Partido. Is that my right? Spanish? Yeah. Comunista Partido. Com Partido Comunista Colombiano, PCC, so the PCC, that was mm. the name, apologies. Sometimes so, my Spanish is a bit rusty, my girlfriend shouts at me. <laughs> <laughs> um, you, you mentioned FOC right at the start of the um, pod. Um, can you talk to us more about FOC? First of all, what does FOC stand for? What does it mean? And were they sort of, um, were they part of this communist party? I mean, where do they fit into this sort of political landscape exactly? So that's a great question. So FARC are fit into this landscape in many, many different ways. Probably the, they are the biggest piece of the jigsaw in terms of the whole, how we've talked a little bit about the 30s, 40s, emerging 50s. But what we now are thinking about is, you know, how has Colombia been marred by violence that's continued post that period. And actually FARC have had the biggest role or one of the biggest roles. So this is important. So we're, uh, we're, so let's talk a little bit about what FARC are, answer some of your questions. So FARC are in Spanish, because again, as I said to you, my girlfriend likes to grill my Spanish. So I like to try and practice. <laughs> uh, so the Spanish term is Fuerza Alternativa Revolucionaria del Comun. And what that means is the revolutionary armed forces of Colombia. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. So what they are 
are a guerrilla movement and they are their ideals and and everything that they stand for is based on a marxist leninist principles so going back to early day communism does that make sense yeah okay so i guess now to answer your question how were they so significant or what role did they play they played a role where they were the biggest they became the the biggest sort of armed revolutionary guerrilla movement in colombia there were many different organizations that came about and we'll talk a little bit about some of them later as well eln which was the, mm. the, 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 the national art, uh, the, the sort of national liberation army. Um, you know, there were various different sort of factions of guerrilla movements, but FARC was by far the biggest. Sure. Does that make sense? Are you yeah. getting a bit of an understanding? Of uh, yeah, okay, I'm, cool. I'm listening intently, mate. It's, uh, yeah, keep my, uh, yeah, listening. So, yeah, I mean, we were just talking about uh, FARC and, sort of how important of a role they, they played. And, 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 and I think it's important to think about when one of the questions you asked is when was FARC created or um, when did it come about? And the actual establishment of FARC was in the 1960s after the period of La Violencia. But I think what I was trying to say just to get our audience uh, uh, just to gauge their understanding is mm -hmm. that communism had been around in that region for 30 years prior and so, I think when you look at what happened in Cuba um, you know it's quite clear to see that communism was in various part in various geographical proximity in regions in that part of the world so um, Thinking about what FARC was, it's, it was, as I said, it is what the name says. So the revolutionary, the armed revolutionary forces of Colombia. So they, they are a guerrilla movement that took up, they took up arms. Um, and they, they created, and they were formed, so they were formed in the early 1960s, um, by a man called well who was known as the Comandante at that time his name was Manuel Marlanda Vélez um, and actually uh, there was a he was part of the he was part of as I said before um, the the Partido Comunista uh, Colombiano uh, uh, PCC that, that you mentioned the, Exactly, that, mm. that had been around for the 30s. So he was an integral part of, of that. And actually there was a Colombian military attack on the community of Marquetel... need to pronounce this right. Marquetalalia. And mm. in that region, that was basically a region that was sort of self-declared as all of the sort of PCC members and all these rural defense leagues and stuff, they control that region. And it was a like a deal made with the government, but the government broke that and there was a military attack and they came into the region and they tried to destabilize it. Sorry, so, this, this attack, sorry, just to um, just ask that, that was by FARC, you say? Or by another organization? No, 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 so this was, that was, uh, done by the conservative government. So the conservative oh, the government PCC. went. Okay. Okay. The conservative government went into an area that was controlled by the PCC under a truce, where mm. they had told them that certain communities, rural lands, you can create your own uh, rural leagues, peasant leagues, where you control it, and it was the PCC communists controlling regions of land trying to apply this marxist lenin kind of principles that they that they that, that they've clung on to um but actually the government and the military broke that promise and they went and attacked this region um that led to this gentleman as i said 
um, Malanda, you know, he basically said that we need to do more. And his response to doing more was the establishment of FARC, which was a formed organization, militia, many people would say, but organization that took up arms with clear military objectives. So I guess um, some of our audience are probably going to know what kind of military objectives would they be able to set? How would they be able to run as an organization? And I think these are all questions that I asked myself when I got interested in this topic. And um, one thing that you've got to sort of apply when you think about how, how what, what kind of things would be generating money for them to go ahead and sustain to continue to sustain be sustainable as an organization to continue to keep their arms which they had done pre to 2016 and, and 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 be able to fight this war with not just the government but with this conservative oligarchical class that continues to deny them their rights and I, and again this is important for some of our audience out there is to get a sense of what Colombia was really like. And actually rural Colombia was completely lawless. It was completely lawless. So when you get a picture of what you think about when you think about urban Colombia in cities like Bogota, Medellin, Cali, you know, you can't even imagine what rural Colombia is like and the difficulty to truly manage regions like that. Does that make sense? Yeah, 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 yeah. No, that does, man. That's, um, yeah. Well, one question just to jump in. I know we, you sort of touched upon it earlier and we talked about, we're talking about FARC and stuff. Um, there are other guerrilla movements which you touched upon. The, um, uh, well, I did look this up. I don't have a clue about any of them, but just uh just bear with me. So you had ELN, who you've mentioned, um, EPL, I think you mentioned the Maoist backing, M19, and the indigenous people, uh, the one which was part of that, the Quintan Lame or something. Um, so I just don't answer that. But um, yeah, if you talk about more about those uh, movements within that time frame and how they all uh, either interacted or opposed each other during this uh, time period, which we were discussing, which like you mentioned, 60s, probably going to 70s. So, so I think uh, it's a good question. Um, some of the organizations that you named, I probably don't know so much about. So the ELN, I do know a little bit about. They're mm. the National Libera Liberation Army. Again, formed in the 60s, formed with similar ideals to FARC, um, consequent to this ongoing battle between conservatives and liberals and this this ongoing battle between landowners and those that labor on the on the land so the agricultural workers um and and, and i think the eln was i think the only thing with the eln was it never drove the kind of the backing that farc got and the sort of international recognition recognition FARC got. I do know a little bit about M19. You mentioned M19. M19 were, were, were quite a big organization, a guerrilla organization that I think, from my understanding, I could be wrong, but it came a little, they came a little bit later down the line. And actually, they made a lot of their money through kidnappings, kidnappings of famous people. Now, that is obviously theme that we're going to talk about in this pod um, that various organizations and it almost it was a technique used in guerrilla warfare as a as a as a as a means to sustaining the the subsequent cause the guerrilla cause for these guys to continue living in the mountains continue to have their arms and be able to fight this ongoing battle with the government and actually the, 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 the oligarchs, the right-wing oligarchs of Colombia at that time. Hmm. Uh, going back to ELN, which you mentioned, um, you said they, they didn't get as much uh, recognition or, I don't know, weren't as visible or, you know, or higher up 
uh, as opposed to FARC. So were they fighting alongside FARC? Did they have the same ideology? What, what was sort of separated them exactly? So same ideology, um, they, they, I guess, the, the, the issues in Colombia would, would probably, there's a lot of deep-rooted issues in terms of people wanting to take control of regions, um, you know, having more sort of, some people were more opposed to having kind of like a centralised kind of organisation. I think FARC was very centralised in the sense that it, it had a top-down approach. They'd have top commanders or commandantes who would report to subsequent commandantes who would then report to subsequent commandantes. Does that make sense? Whereas I think the ELN were trying to go with the ideals of uh, they didn't need so many co like commanders and top figures. It was more of a cohort, a smaller cohort, um, uh, like a, a smaller kind of cohort, but cohesive, but at the same level. I guess everybody's aims were a little bit, just a little bit different, but ideals were largely the same. Okay. All right. So then what happened <laughs> next on that sort of time frame? Are we talking... <laughs> Sorry, so no, I was saying, what, what was next in this, in this time, timeline of events with these uh, guerrilla movements and uh, the whole country, I guess? Yeah, no, I think, uh, so what was to come was, so for, for, for one thing, FARC taking up arms meant that they were ready using as I said, this sort of former communist ideology that had been there as early as the days of the PCC or PCC, um, that they would be able to use a variety of military tactics to get what they want in this war. And, and, and that actually Colombia was about to, about to be, uh, essentially a war was, was about to break out. Um, and, and, and how, what kind of military tactics, I guess, would be something that everyone would want to ask. Um, you've got to look at things like more unconventional methods of, 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 of violence. So as I said, we've, we've talked about kidnapping already, um, terrorism. So things like, you know, bombs. Um, this, was, this was something that was was very much thought about. And maybe as we get later into the pod, we can talk about Pablo Escobar's involvement with that as well. Um, and how he, he links up with, with both sides in this war, actually. Um, so yeah, what, what emerges from there is, is, is that, 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 that essentially Colombia starts to emerge. It's already seen this period of violence but now it's an all-out war. Hmm. Well, actually, yeah, like, like I said, trying to keep up with this time timeline of events. Um, so moving into the 70s, this is kind of um, where the drugs shifted, right? Like the imported goods of the 50s and 60s all changed, and I'm assuming cocaine then came into, into, the, into the limelight. So, yeah, well, talk to us maybe a bit about this era and you know, how this all interconnects. Yeah, I think that's, an, that's a great question, honestly, um, because I think, and I feel a bit bad, but you, you'd almost have to skip maybe sort of 10 years almost. And maybe, I think, maybe late 70s, but particularly early 80s, you saw that, that there was a, obviously a significant coca boom. And, and, and that allowed... Um, that allowed various guerrilla organizations, none more so than ELN or FARC, um, to actually say that we can expand into what was almost regarded as an army at that, at that stage. And that would allow them to take it to the next platform in terms of a, 
achieving their military objectives. So, for example, they would be allowed to having the manpower to, to have this almost this army, funded army, who have taken up arms. You can you can go ahead with large scale attacks that they had wanted to carry out on the Colombian national military. Does that make sense? Yep. Okay. So what you what then was happening is is that they realized that these movements need to take a complete military stance. So during the time of the civil civil war between the liberal liberals and the conservatives, and then the emergence of a bipartisan system, they were trying to find a peaceful resolve at the end of it. Now the resolve was quite clear. It was military action. Hmm. Interesting. So, so the the coca boom coincided with, um, you know, all various different guerrilla movements and their possibilities of expanding and actually developing. As I said, in terms of then their manpower, in terms of developing an army, a structure, structural army, and um, and actually just like everyone else at that time everybody wanted to get in on the coca game um the gorillas were no different um and they very much saw it as an economic opportunity as i said to take things to the next step as an organization and this is probably where you saw fart emerge as the sort of the largest organization if it were mm. okay Interesting stuff. So one question I wanted to ask was around, I don't know how much you know about this, but the USA's role and the intervention in this whole sort of uh, era. Uh, I know obviously they're supplying arms and finances to certain groups. Um, could you tell us more about that? And uh, yeah, just the whole overall involvement and maybe which sides did they back or you know, were they kind of playing the field or situation there? Yeah, I, I don't know so much on this topic in terms of the US involvement, but I think as, as many of our um, audience will know, uh, the, the fact that the guerrilla movements identify with a Marxist-Leninist kind of principalism uh, and these communist theories and ideology um, the U.S., just like their sort of involvement anywhere else, was very much anti-communism. And it was how they could work with the government, and not just the government, somebody else that we need to talk a little bit more about, which is the right-wing paramilitaries. Um, and actually how the my understanding is the U.S. government and the Colombian government both supported these right-wing paramilitary death squads to go out and kill various guerrilla leaders and various different political leaders of liberal stance who had been former guerrillas as well. Mm. Interesting. All right, so, I mean, during this whole era, and I think... I'm right in saying we're in, we're probably in terms of time frame. We're talking about the 80s now, I guess. What's the sort of current status of you know peace talks, for example, or anything like that? Is there anyone sort of advocating that? Is there any sides pushing towards that? You know, what's the situation surrounding that? So I think that's a really good question, and I think you know it, it's a, you've almost got the timeline exactly right because. Um, what you had was you had 70s, um, late 70s, as we said, the coca boom, the expansion, the increase of violence. And actually, for Colombian people at that time, it was a tiresome time. It was, you know, a time where, you know, various people mourned loved ones, lost loved ones. 
seeing, you know, endless violence. The violence is also escalating and people were fed up. And actually from 83 onwards, um, you had the, uh, I believe it was President Barco and no, sorry. Uh, the first president was President Benton Kerr, and then it was President Barco. And what they did is, President Benton Kerr, if I'm not mistaken, created a pact, a union pact. And what that was called was the Uribe Agreement, named after the geographical area in Colombia called Uribe. So... Um, it was called the Uribe Agreement, and they created a pact, which was called Union Patriotica. The, it's, it's almost like a, a, a union pact. Um, and that was the first sort of real emergence of any form of peace talks. So in 83, this was something that was, was considered and it resulted in 84 in, as I said, the La Uribe Agreement. And that asked for an official ceasefire, um, to, which, would, which ended up lasting for three years, between 84 and 87. You know, the, um, the UP you mentioned, um, how... How close were they to FARC exactly? Like, you know, what was the involved, what was the sort of, you know, integration between the two? So UP, so sorry, maybe I didn't explain myself. UP, Union Patriotica, was simply a pact between the government and all of the guerrilla organizations, especially FARC. Like, because FARC had the most military members. And it was an agreement for a ceasefire and the process of peace talks to start. Okay, interesting. But unfortunately, it didn't last. And, and, and I guess, you know, there'll be a lot of, lot of people are wondering why didn't it last? Because if then in 2016, you have to revisit again, what, what, what happened for it not to last? And I guess, when you think of a war and you think about a, cease, a potential ceasefire, you've always got to think about two sides honoring their promises um, and actually, you know, continuing to demonstrate that they are going to honor those promises. And I think what you got here was a betrayal, a betrayal by the government. Um, and the reason for that was various members of Union Patriotica, so subsequently FARC, EP, ELN members, they had been murdered and they were murdered by landowners who had been paid to go and uh, kill off various. So I think, I believe it was up to, I'm not 100%, but I believe estimates of up to 4,000 people were killed. Okay. Um, can so I ask a question? That, sorry. And that's so just, 86. 86, sorry. Okay. Yeah. Just, just to buy in there, I just want to ask a question. So where does um, uh, Pablo Escobar and other cartels fit into this whole, you know, paradigm at this current moment in time? So obviously talking about these guerrillas and the movements and political arms and whatnot. So where do the cartels fit during this period? Okay, so cartels fit, uh, they, 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 they fit, they, they almost like the fitting, it's the, 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 the missing piece of the jigsaw. So, um, you know, how do, they, how do the cartels work? The cartels know that everybody else wants to get their hands on areas. The cartels in an ideal world would like to take control of various areas. However, they know, and again, it's important for our audience to understand what Colombia is really like, that various parts of rural Colombia are almost inaccessible. Um, unless you know routes through the jungle, 
through the mountains and which are many of these guerrillas were uh, guerrillas who were sent to Vietnam and Soviet Union respectively to train. They've got skills where they're, they're developed in doing that. And actually, you know, for many of the, the, the narco traffickers, they realize there are many areas that they're not going to be able to take control of. And um, so what all that happens is, is that both the guerrillas and the right-wing paramilitaries will look at to people like Pablo Escobar and the Medellin cartel and the Cali cartel, and they will say, we want to do business with you so that they can continue to fund their armed struggle, respectively. And I, I, I guess shouldn't even use the term respectively, because with FARC, we understand what the ideals were, and it was to do with the socioeconomic turmoil and the fact that they weren't getting the access to the benefits of Colombia that, as I said, the, the, the wealthy landowner oligarchical class were. The right-wing paramilitary violence, I don't believe is justified. So my understanding is that there were two brothers, and again, many people who have watched some of the series on Netflix will know a little bit about this. Narcos demonstrates a little bit about this. I, I believe their real names were the Castaneda brothers. And um, those two brothers were, their dad was killed by a, he was a, he was a very wealthy landowner, and he was killed by a gorilla. Uh, during the, 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 the sort of violent period, and they made a they made a vow to go and kill or or physically torture every guerrilla in the country. Now you are creating death squads. You are creating armed former military members who are ready to take up arms again and go and fight with guerrillas. So on all angles, it's important to understand that we. we what the element of this war is, and a lot of this war is to do with socioeconomic struggle. And actually, with FARC and the key members, many of them never really deviated from that. That was the core principles. Unfortunately, unfortunately, that there were many dissidents. And with dissidents, what you got during the coca trade was these factions or these dissidents that were sort of separating off and they were more interested in the narco trafficking, the money to be obtained. Hmm. The, that, that, rather than the ideals of, you know, Karl Marx or Leninism per se. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, one, so, so, so we're talking about these cartels. How exactly did they respond to these proposed peace talks and maybe um, subsequent peace agreements? Um, I'm assuming, as you said earlier, each of these movements, um, guerrilla and paramilitary, they they were looking to utilize the resources and uh, you know just these cartels fully, basically. So you know, how did they respond during this this era exactly? So to, to those think, peace think, talks, sorry. I think the cartels will always, and this is my impression of it. I think the cartels would always look to see what is in their political interest, what would be in their best interest. So I think at that time, avoiding extrad extradition to the US, you know, for selling cocaine, you know, I, I believe Pablo Escobar, one, one famous word you might know as well, many of our audience at home will know is, uh, he says that, you know, he would prefer to die in a Colombian prison, uh, sorry, he, he would prefer to die in Colombia than rot in an American prison. Um, and actually, you know, they, many of them were looking to how FARC working with the government could actually benefit them. And actually how on a wider scale, both FARC, right-wing paramilitary defense leagues, narco-traffickers, all those involved in violence and criminal activity, how they could solely be charged and, and convicted in their country in Colombia. And I think that was a hot topic on their agenda at that time. So uh, in response to how they actually looked at the peace talks, I think they were monitoring it closely. But in terms of money, they, they would have operated like any cartel would, which is that they've still got to make their money. Interesting. All right, so we come to the end of the 80s. I'm assuming you talked about the peace agreement. Um, 
yeah, what's next? Bring us home. What's next in this timeline? I'm sure many things have happened since, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I, I think what you got from there is, as I said, you got this 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 betrayal, this betrayal that that, that took place from the government, and and I think when you look at that betrayal, that led, as I said, to sort of you know estimates of up to five thousand, four and a half thousand people were murdered, um, of you know Union Patriotica, you know uh, FARC, EL members, FARC, uh, sorry ELN members. Um, and actually, you know, that, 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 that doesn't really represent what was really in the Union Patriotica with regards to the ceasefire. And actually, that was meant to last up until 87. Uh, as I said, this, is, this has now happened in 86. So um, you, what then happened was, was that the Union Patriotica decided they've got to start forming more groups and smaller defense leagues as representatives across the country. So they continued to do that. Um, and what you then found going into the 90s were that there was a string of assassinations, a string of assassinations on majority um, sort of were right-wing oligarchical familial status presidential candidates in the 90s. And actually, I think it's something drastic, like 65% of Colombian presidents during that period, 1990, early 90s, um, were assassinated. And of, all, of those that were left, sorry, that were left wing, supposing so, the socialist reform, so supporting these people in rural areas, they were assassinated. So I guess now we've got to think about, we've talked about farm, we've talked a little bit about guerrillas, we've given a snapshot of how sort of communism and guerrilla warfare has, 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 has taken to Colombia. But what about the other side? And, and is it just the government or what does the government represent? And what are these right wing paramilitary groups that I keep talking about? So, so I want to talk a little bit about them. And, and, and as I said, I, we've mentioned, you, you know, that they, they emerged because of two brothers whose dad was killed, mm -hmm. famous landowner. And actually, these land, the, 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 they started to get, get former military from the Colombian, Colombian National Army to take up arms and fight guerrillas. Now, this is where the war becomes a little bit uneven, in my opinion, or from my understanding. How so exactly? Well, you touched upon it earlier in terms of you were wondering about foreign, foreign country involvement, so particularly US involvement. Mm, and U.S. Okay. Colombian relations and how it shaped that. Mm -hmm. Thinking about that, and um, also thinking about the Colombian government. So the Colombian government almost having this state backing under a conservative government to go out and commit these acts. Yeah, no, oh, fair enough. Um, two questions I have quickly about the um, the '90s in particular. Um, I read a statement when I was sort of looking into this and they were saying that uh, there was a sort of influx of population from people from the countryside um, heading into sort of the major cities, et cetera, et cetera. Like what was kind of the reason behind this and um, yeah, what provoked that exactly? And secondly, in the nineties also, I think it was finally when the UN kind of entered into the fray. So yeah, if you could talk, talk to us about those two, um, I'm assuming quite key events in the 90s. But, um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So starting with your first point um, in terms of, uh, you know, why, were, why was it that these sort of rural workers were, were moving into the, the cities? And, and I guess this was, this was part of a sort of a conservative-backed government that 
that wanted to essentially denounce the work of agriculturalism. I think the the the, the profession is agrarianism. So the, the 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 those they they wanted to get rid of those. Now what that means is is that you've got a workforce that need to go and find work. So where does everybody go? They go to the city. So suddenly you've got rather than maybe, you know, educated middle class, you've got skilled laborers who are out of those jobs fleeking to the capital and to um, other big cities in search of different opportunities. Does that answer your question at all? Mm, yeah, yeah. And the, uh, the point on the UN exactly, their involvement in the or intervention in the 90s, what was that sort of down to and um, how, yeah, how did it come about? What did they actually do though? I think, I think when you look at the UN and, and you think of Colombia, you know, you're right to say that the 90s was significant in terms of the UN involvement. But I think you've also got to think about Colombia as a whole and how much violence they've truly seen. Uh, and actually maybe why the UN weren't involved sooner. Um, yeah, but a lot, of that violence, a lot of that violence could have been, not really, could have been public knowledge, if you like, maybe, you know, like spreading yeah. across the globe, especially when it's in fighting within different uh, sort of political parties and guerrillas, et cetera. Maybe the full scale of it wasn't really known. And I'm guessing in the 90s it was known, hence why it sort of forced the UN's hand to kind of, not intervene, but finally maybe take notice. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, when I'm thinking about the UN involvement, uh, I'm thinking about the, what, what was their rationale to get involved at that time. I think it was that maybe they saw um, the FARC or FARC EP as, as truly, you know, an organization that did carry a, quite a significant backing. And, and if, if, you know, as we talked about, you know, with, with the expansion of the coca boom and coca farmers, actually, um, they, they, they felt that at that time, you know, it was right for them, the UN, to have some sort of involvement in terms of getting FARC to stop with, stop pursuing military objectives and actually try to pursue peaceful but political dialogue. Mm. Awesome. All right. So, all right. Why don't you just take us home now, man? We, uh, let's say we covered the nineties, um, to some degree, uh, we've now reached a new millennium. So hear us to present day, what's going on. So I think, uh, yeah, you, you, you know, we've touched upon the nineties and going on to the late nineties, early two thousands. Um, you, you, you t asked earlier about sort of us involvement and there was a, uh, a FARC contingent, who had killed three USA-based indigenous rights activists. Um, and they were working with, I believe the name of the organization was the UWA people. Uh, that encouraged the government of the United States to put a lot of pressure on the Colombian presidency at that time to crack down on FARC guerrillas. And I think it kind of demonstrated to the world FARC's presence, not just within Colombia, and their ability to carry out escalating military objectives in other countries as well. Um, and, and actually, that was in response to, um, you know, the US taking this sort of anti-communist stance. Uh, so then in, in, in uh, again, they tried to continue with a peace protest early on. But again, the government did betrayed and there were there were certain things that you know they weren't able to they weren't able to provide guarantees or the guarantees that they made 
they then went back on them. Um, I think before we get to current day, it's important to think back to 2002. And, you know, many of our audience at home are very much in the know about things that happened in Northern Ireland and with relation to Sinn Féin and IRA in particular. And actually, going back to 2002, very important year in Colombian history, um, particularly that alliance, that ever-growing alliance that came throughout the 90s, but sort of at the late 90s, early 2000s, really strengthened between FARC, EP, and the IRA. And actually, many people remember them as the Colombian Three, although worldwide they're known as the Irish three. Tom, Mag Tom McGonaghy is one and I can't remember the other names. Actually I've got that wrong. It's not Tom McGonaghy, it's Jim McGonaghy and I can't remember the other ones. Sure. But the other, the other two, I, I, Niall Connolly is one and I can't remember the last one but they were known as the Irish three and they were arrested in Bogota um, like they were uh, they were connected sorry they were arrested in the connection to another arrest regards to two other ira explosive and urban welfare experts and i guess what this link showed and this was in bogota airport was how far had almost become this internationally known organization having such qu quite clear and uh, as i said we know early on they were sending members to vietnam soviet union to be trained respectively but this is demonstrating quite a current and real um organization that was on our doorstep the ira well are you saying um like Sinn Féin? FARC basically uh, joined as a political party uh, opposition in Colombia, Absolutely. So that is, so that is, if we want to now move from the arrest of the Irish Three to almost skip it 10 years and come to where we got to with the, P, the, the eventual peace deal, where you got the eventual peace deal in 2016 and it was signed in Havana, it was signed in Havana and it was, you know, officially the recognition that FARC will lay down their weapons. And they respected that and they laid down their weapons. And what was given in return was an agreement that they can now become an organization in the decree of the constitution that is recognized on a political level. So they can represent their ideology on a political platform, but not with military objectives and clearly being part of the Congress of Colombia. Hmm. So what, what happened to these other guerrilla movements um, at this time? Did they all sort of um, gain, uh, obtain sort of parliamentary status or were they uh, sort of know, shunned away or are they still guerrillas? You know, where are they kind of now? What happened to them? I think, I think that's a good question. I think the reality of it is probably a mixed bag. You probably will get some that probably are still in the mountains, guerrillas, fighting for their own small liberation cause or, or whatnot. Then you, you, you'll get other... I think it's very dependent on an individual basis. Mm. Oh, fair enough. So what, what's the current landscape like now, though, just generally in Colombia, we talk politically and... Uh, I don't know in terms of you obviously all the things you mentioned like violence and kidnappings and all this that uh, that obviously is a stigma which may have been placed upon them and people who don't know the area well will obviously think maybe that still occurs in you know maybe in less fashion but it's still there. Can you just sort of give us a current day view of what's what Colombia is like maybe in that sense? I think Colombia is very. Um... I think there are places in Colombia that are marred by ongoing violence, particularly rural areas. And actually, when we've just finished and concluded with a peace treaty in 2016, we do know now that 
a year and a half later, uh, FARC have taken up weapons again, various members, because of, wow. once again, for the third time, but at this time officially, um, the government not honouring their responses and actually going out and killing former FARC members during the peace process. So there is ongoing violence that instills. But what I would say is, and this is something that many of our audience maybe wouldn't know, and, and it would be good for them to, to know, is that rural Colombia, as I've said in the pod earlier, is quite clearly a lawless land. And it's very difficult to truly police that land, per se. Um, I think for that reason, and for the reason that probably there will be guerrillas of various smaller organizations, dissidents, factions uh, that exist, um, and also the ongoing socioeconomic problems in Colombia mean that there would be places in rural Colombia that wouldn't be safe. But when you think about cities, I think they're some of the safest places in, in the world. I mean, I, I, my, my girlfriend's from Medellin and Medellin has become the city in Latin America with the most change over the last 20 years. So, you know, you think about Pablo Escobar in the 90s um, and, 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 and sort of the ongoing war between Cali cartel and the Medellin cartel and, and the kind of explosives that marred those two brilliant Colombian cities at that time. You know, Colombia's changed a lot. The cities are very safe. Um, people are really friendly. The culture is amazing. I, I, I think it's really important to get it out there that whilst we're intrigued by this sort of negative and, and violent aspect of history in, in their country, it doesn't take away all the great and beautiful aspects of their culture and, and country. Yeah, that's interesting. Awesome. All right, well, Doc, that was really interesting. Honestly, um, thanks so much for your time, mate. Genuinely appreciate it. Um, yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank you mm. for having me. Thank You're you. always welcome hope. in the shed. You're always welcome in the shed, so we, we hope to get you on again soon. Um, thanks for that, people. Stay safe. Goodbye.